relax, you got nothing to lose. What do you think I'm about to show you? The female of the species is more deadly than a male. Show me a movie, you can say it again. Just wait till you see what I did at the end. The female of the species is more deadly than a male. Hello, everyone, and welcome to More Deadly, the Director's Cut, where we speak with the women-identified directors who are making the horror movies we love so, so much. More Deadly is a trans-inclusive podcast. We celebrate the work of cis and trans women, as well as non-binary filmmakers who are comfortable with being included in a space that centers the work of women. Joining me today on this, honestly, incredible day (laughs) is my lovely, lovely friend and like co-conspirator <laughs> Ariel. Hi. <laughs> hey, how are you? How excited for today are you? I am thrilled. This was a long time in the works and I'm mm-hmm. so excited that we're finally getting the chance to share it with people. Oh my I know. I know. We'll, we'll get into it because like, <laughs> there is definitely uh, well, we got to talk about the day it ha- like started to happen yeah. and all that kind of stuff, because this is just one of those kind of amazing things that came together. First of all, though, how have you been? How are you? How have you been? What's going yeah, on with you? Yeah, I've been good. Yeah? I've been super interesting, but I've been good. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Um, <laughs> I have also been good. It is, we are wrapping up spooky season. We've been having a lot of fun celebrating that, but I'm also very much looking forward to getting into the next holiday mode, which is, of course, Christmas. Your fave, yes. It is my fave. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that this episode feels a little bit like I got a Christmas gift early. And I know that's corny as hell, but in my heart of hearts, it's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Christmas oh, let's just get early. <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. They don't want to hear okay. about us. They want to hear from our amazing guest. Yeah, they do. So yeah, we have a very, very awesome show this episode. We had the, when I say pleasure, that barely touches it, chatting with the incredible Rachel Talalay, who you may have heard of. Uh, she's a director of a couple of uh, films and television series you may have heard of, including Tank Girl, Supernatural, The Dead Zone, Sherlock, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, one of the best episodes of Doom Patrol, Puppet Patrol, American Gods, A Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, Riverdale, Doctor Who, oh, and a little movie you may have heard of before called Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. That's right. <laughs> Icon. Icon, the only woman to have directed one of the like top tier, S tier horror series is, joined us to have set the record straight and also give us you know her experience with making a film in one of the most iconic franchises in uh, across all genres so kind of a big deal (laughs) 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 but before we get into the actual interview we got to talk about how it came about ariel tell me about the day that you texted me and i was like (laughs) wait what So this is pretty, this was wild for us because, you know, we do a lot of these reviews and have over the years and we very rarely hear from people. 
especially somebody of Rachel Talalay's caliber. But yeah. uh, the day that we posted our Freddy's Dead review episode on social media, she commented on our post. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. it was crazy. Not to be a fangirl, but it was kind of a fangirl moment. Yeah. Yeah. It blew my mind. Like I immediately screenshotted it and sent it to Rachel so she could see and both of our minds could be blown together. And then I was able to kind of chat with her on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple things that she wanted to sort of set straight about our review. <sighs> um, and so, <laughs> and Oops, so my fault. I, So I just decided to uh, shoot our shot and ask, would you be interested in being interviewed on our podcast? And amazingly, she said yes. And Mm -hmm. we started DMing and she told me I never do interviews on podcasts. I don't like doing that. But because you guys focus on women directed horror movies, I want to come on. And we were able to set up an interview and it took us a couple months to get everything set up and for her to find time because she's been shooting like uh, Doctor Who, for instance, kind and of some other thing. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, I can't do it right now because I'm on set. And I was like, oh, shit, she's such a big deal. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she finally found time and we got to sit down and do this interview. And it's just been very, very exciting. Yeah. And it's such a great interview because we yeah. do get, we talk a lot about Freddie's dead and her thought. Pro- like the thing is, is we do so much projection. Part of what we do on the show, in addition to just talking like sort of our subjective feelings about the film is we, and I'm sure we get it wrong a lot. We ascribe a lot of things to the directors that are making these films and guessing what their intentions were. And so it was really fascinating for me personally to hear actually what the filmmaker was thinking yeah that was so much fun to me but that's not all we also had a really i think fantastic conversation about modern history in terms of women in the women directors in the horror genre like she was one of a handful of women who had a front row seat to what that looks like we speculate about it we talk about it but she lived it and it was I could have yeah. talked to her for like three more hours just about that. Yeah. And we got to have a pretty long interview with her. And so she goes into a lot of detail about behind the scenes stuff with Freddy's Dead and the whole mm-hmm. nightmare series because she was, you know, she was involved from start to finish, basically. So we got a lot of that. But yeah, just the way that she talked about the industry and how things have changed and what effect it had on her career mm-hmm. uh, was really, really interesting. And I'm super glad that she was willing to talk about that stuff. And I can't wait for people to hear it. Yeah, this is a really great conversation. She's so open and just candid and awesome and charming and brilliant. And I think if you are a fan of this franchise or of women directors, women working in the horror genre, there's just so much great stuff in this. And I hope that you guys love it as much as we loved doing it. So without further ado, enough of us rambling because we could do it. We can do more if you want more, but I don't think you do. Let's actually get into this interview with Rachel Talalay and yeah, enjoy. 
So first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's it's such a treat to get to talk to you and to talk about the film that we've we've already talked about the film, but to get to talk more in depth about the making of it, behind the scenes, your thoughts, like this is kind of the dream, right? Because we do so much projecting when we review a film uh, to actually get to hear you talk about it is going to be so exciting. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you for your long and uh, impassioned piece on Freddie's dad. So it's such, it's so, it's so fun. And it was very inspiring to listen to the so much positivity about it as well. Um, oh, so, so thank, thank you. So you. <laughs> Amazing. So, I mean, we, we always do a little bit of background. We always talk about the history of the film and we, you know, we try our best to do the history, right. And the history of the filmmaker as well, because it is both a celebration of the art and the artist. Uh, and you have such a long history with Nightmare on Elm Street. You started and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> as an accountant at New Line Cinema and worked your way up through the subsequent films. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, you know, what it was like, you know, maybe to fight your way to that position, especially when there was a time in a time where there were not really a lot of women directing horror films? So it was all kind of to do with the time period, which is the 80s was very much the video cassette time period. But I started, I knew nobody in the industry. I knew I wanted, was interested in it. I didn't really understand what would be required in making a film. It's pretty well known that I was a math major at Yale. So I didn't have, um, and Yale wasn't a film school. So um, I wasn't, didn't grow up with a movie camera in, in my face um, or on my eye. So, uh, but I, the first job I got was as a production assistant on Polyester. Um, and that's where I first met New Line. Uh, because Bob Shea and New Line was one of one of the financiers of, of polyester, because I grew up in Baltimore, and um, from that I went and worked in New York on Alone in the Dark, uh, with uh, which Jack Shoulder directed, which was and so I was in the actual physical New Line offices, so I actually had to work very directly with. So they said, "Oh, we don't have an account." It was such a low budget film. They're like, "We don't have an accountant." <laughs> Um, and you did math at Yale, so won't you come to the accountant? And I pretty much, I pretty much knew zero about accounting because, as you know, math and accounting are not actually. But I was more qualified to learn than the other production assistants who were on set um, and were able to set up lights and 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 do other. Uh, and I was really happy to be in the office because it was middle of winter and they were out in the snow <laughs> in the snow all the time um, so i was given this huge this is pre-computers pretty much so i was given this huge ledger book and basically told you know fill in all the checks or write the checks fill in all the checks pay all pay the bills balance everything so I'm like, okay, I can I can figure this out because it's yeah. uh, so that so that's what I did and I had to the unenviable job of going to talk to um, Bob Shea, the head of the company, about sort of the equivalent of a cost report that we didn't do formally, but I would have to get him to sign the checks and I would have to get him, talk about where we were over budget and and have the messenger shot, which not long afterwards, I had the same unenviable job with Roger Corman, 
uh, notoriously through the you know ripped up checks and threw things at the <laughs> at the messenger. Oh um, no! So, so I got quite good at at uh, uh, just sort of starting with okay, this is what the bill is. This is what we're supposed to pay. Do you want to pay it? <laughs> um, <laughs> but that gave me a, a relationship with the head of New Line. So when they, and then I thought, I can't do this in New York. I'm going to go to LA. So I moved to LA, worked with Roger Corman. And when New Line decided to make Nightmare and it was the first full-scale production, um, they asked me if I'd come and be the accountant uh, on Nightmare One. And during this time and just a tiny bit of history, the video cassette world had blown up. Um, and so, I mean, in the positive way. And so there was yeah. all this money coursing through the marketplace for lower budget projects. And the because they couldn't compete with anything that was star driven, genre was the way to go to get into the marketplace. So that's one reason that there were all these low budget horror films being made. And with right. New Line, Bob really loved uh, a good good piece of genre. And he recognized in Nightmare everything that was fantastic about it. Um, he knew he had a really... And that script was so scary. I mean, the film yeah. is so scary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The film is so scary. That script was terrifying. And it's in some ways the opposite of Nightmare 2, where the script wasn't really scary at all. And then we can go through all of them, but I'll... Come back to me. Which is, <laughs> so at that point, I'd been doing some other production work. And so I said, I really don't want to be the accountant again. Um, I'll supervise your accounts if you let me do some production work. So they gave me a credit of assistant production manager. And um, I, I was just trying to work this out with Tommy Hudson, who did the documentary Never Sleep Again, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I found the nightmare house. I did a bunch of location work. But I wasn't credited as the location manager. I and mean, he and I were trying to, because now, now we're talking about, what, 30 something years ago. Sure. Yeah. So we're trying to piece, to, I don't know, is this too much detail? No, 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 no. no. no like, the thing is, is every bit of this has been, these little details that were probably nothing in the moment are iconic things today. <laughs> Which, you know, you have no awareness of that when you're doing right. it. So it's fascinating. Yes, yes. So Tommy and I were trying to work out how, like, I found the Nightmare House. I found Tina's house. I must have found a few other locations. So probably early on in my assistant production manager um, job, I'm guessing there was no location manager at all. And probably early on, I just got sent to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, well, where in LA can we afford to film that looks like Ohio? So right. and in Nightmare One, you needed two houses that were directly across the street from each other to be Nancy yeah. and Glenn's house. Um, yeah. So that was a double challenge, and yeah. with with the you know, with no palm trees, which yeah, I guess you weren't digitally removing things at that, that point. No, exactly. I mean, we're in opti we're in optical world, and the film was only. I mean, I think the budget was only a little more than. Now I can't remember. I wish I had uh, had kept some of that archival, but I think it was only a bit more than a million dollars. So affording the locations, affording shooting in L.A., being non-union, all those issues. So then the film was very successful. And when they came back to do part two, and I mean, a, a lot of this stuff is documented, all the issues between Bob Shea and, and Wes Craven. 
which you should all watch this document. I mean, your, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lis- yeah, yeah. your listeners should all watch the Never Sleep Again uh, eight-hour eight documentary because there's fabulous material in there. But they came back and said, will you do the job again? And I said, no, I want to be the production manager. You know, I've, in between things, I've been doing more stuff. And I, you know, up me. Yeah, <laughs> um, great. And so they said yes. So then when Nightmare 3 came along, they sa- I said, well, can I be the production manager? Um, and I'm sorry, can I be, a- I want to line produce now. So they let me production manager part two. And then part three came along and I'm like, look what I've done. Um, can I line produce? And in credit to Bob Shea, he said, yes. So part three was unspeakably difficult in terms of if you look it over the amount of stuff that we did. And in many ways, it's probably the most impressive uh, uh, feat I accomplished in my entire career in terms of production was doing the the script from Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont was the kitchen sink, stop motion. I mean, optical effects with people with Freddie in the mirrors. I mean, that stuff was so hard. Um, so, uh, I mean, the revolving room in the original one was way beyond our budget and we still did it, but this was like, Mm -hmm. everything was way beyond our budget. So accomplishing that, and I had very little assistance. So for reasons that are complicated, I, it was basically me and one other person doing all production, coordinating production, managing and line producing. So it's really a feat. So after that, New Line said, okay, you, you, and the film was twice as successful as the previous ones um, yeah. after that. And I had introduced Bob to Chuck Russell. So I had sort of brought the, this version of it to the table. So yeah, okay. they, they put me on staff as a staff producer, which was good for them because it meant that they would, wouldn't have to rehire me and pay more every time. So the next, thing, <laughs> the, the, next, the next thing that came along was that the finance, some of the financing fell through on Hairspray. And they said, we're going to finance the whole thing, but now we need somebody to go to Baltimore to supervise it. Um, will you go and, and produce it? So I had to call John Waters and say, they want me to come and be your supervisor. You know, last time I was with you, I was a PA. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel about this? And John embraced that. So I went to Baltimore and produced Hairspray and that worked out really, really uh, well. And I stayed. Another iconic film. Yes. (laughs) So I stayed in that relationship with, uh, uh, um, uh, I mean, that consolidated my, my friendship with John. And so then Nightmare 4 came along, so they gave me a proper producer credit. And then when Nightmare 5 came along, and at this point I was exhausted because between four, during four, it was the uh, writer's strike. So we were not only doing all these things, but we didn't have a script. So we were making Nightmare 4 without a script. Wow. And then Nightmare 5 came along and John was making Crybaby. So I said, could I have a leave of absence to do Crybaby? And Bob was, they were, I mean, I have to say New Line was incredibly good to me because they understood that relationship and let me go off to do that. But Bob said, you have to come back and I'm going to make this film Book of Love that I'm directing and you have to produce that. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) 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 So I came back and produced Bob's directorial debut. 
you know, so uh, producing for the head of the company is, um, and Bob is famously, I mean, I absolutely adore Bob and he's did, and this story is how much he's done for me, but he was a hothead. Um, and he, <laughs> you know, he was a maverick and a hothead. And so that was, and um, I still think I was just a kid, but um, I came back and did Book of Love, at which point I said, could I please direct Nightmare Six? And I wrote a storyline and there was a lot of tension, obviously, about whether they would say yes, but it was much harder for them to say no after um, I had produced for Bob <laughs> giving himself his yeah. first film. Yeah, of course. So, so, and that's how I became the only, and so nobody can follow in my footsteps because that story is so individual and specific sure. to the time yeah. and specific to everything that was going on. So when people say, well, how'd you yeah. start directing? Well, that's a... Because I grew up on the on the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and but that's how I became, and I think I'm still the only woman who's directed on a major franchise. Sadly. Yeah, you are, and I, I mean... killed it for every, I killed it for everyone by, by, <laughs> being, too, by being too by being too girly and making it too campy, and and I'm ex still excoriated for it. So um, oh. that's kind of tough. That is really hard. Yeah. I mean, you're right that to this day, you're the only woman to have ever directed one of those big tentpole franchises. I mean, if you think about like Halloween, Friday the 13th, the Child's Play movies, none of them have any women. So I guess I want to know, how does it feel to be the only one? And what do you think about the fact that that hasn't changed since 1991, that there haven't been any other women to direct? Well, I think things are improving. In I mean, that's a whole mega, mega story about the improvement of situations sure. for women directors, finally, and women are getting to make amazing independent movies. And those tentpole movies yeah. don't exist very much anymore. So the 80s was its own little time of Friday the 13th and Nightmare and Halloween. And so I think times are changing and you have you, there are great movies being made by women directors now horror movies being made by women directors now so yeah. um and you, there are a few um i mean pet cemetery uh, mary lambert got to make pet cemetery during that time so it's not exclusive but i do think that they still look to men generally for those no matter what i mean i joke that i killed it for everybody but um I hope I didn't, you know, I no. often think that in different, in different ways. And uh, I, I just sort of want to set the record straight about a couple of things that. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. About, about, yeah. I don't know if you want to ask questions or you want me to. Oh, <laughs> jump I in. mean, what I was going to, my next question literally was basically, you know, we, we do, we do our best to do our due diligence when we, we do the research for these, but obviously we've gotten some things wrong on your episode. I'm sure on other episodes. And so I would love to give you the opportunity to set the record straight on where we went wrong because yeah, I, I, I want to, I want to get it right. I want to know the truth. Well, first of all, your uh, bio was beautiful and made me, I mean, and your, uh, the things that the, the homework you did was fantastic. And so there's a couple of questions I have in terms of where did you get certain information? Because and the number one is to do with the Peter Jackson script. Yes. Yeah. Because I never knew the Peter Jackson script even existed. I've never seen the Peter Jackson script. When people have come to me to talk about the Peter Jackson script, that all happened either before. I didn't even know it was nightmare that this nightmare that it was involved with. 
I thought it was later or I thought it was generically something he did. So I really know nothing about the Peter Jackson story, except that I knew that Mark Rodesky, who worked at New Line, had a really strong relationship with Peter, which ultimately led to Lord of the Rings. So the first script that was written for Freddy's Dead was written by Michael Almereda. Um, and that's the script that we didn't like. It wasn't And please don't, oh. nobody should get the indication that I had some kind of power to say, I don't like this. I mean, this is, a, <laughs> this is, this is new line and I'm just the director. Sure. So a lot of the stuff that's sort of attributed to me doesn't take into consideration. That, I mean, I get blamed for everything. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. There's, sure. a, there's a committee. So there's a lot of things. So, so that was question number one that I need to set the record straight on is not only did I not hate the Peter Jackson script, I have never seen the Peter Jackson script. <laughs> oh, that's so, so interesting. The information that you had on the Peter Jackson script is fascinating to me because <laughs> it's, all, it's all new and I've heard about it, but not I've never seen anything to do with it. So that was number one. So I wondered where you put together that piece of information. I think it was a combination of a couple of different interviews that began with Wikipedia and following the links to different interviews. I could mm -hmm. I could do a little research and follow up with an email to show you exactly where I saw it. But that my research came from I watched some interviews with you. Hopefully that's the stuff you liked because I got it right. Um, and then I, I read interviews. What I tend to do is I will Google like interview your name and then the film and then I go to Wikipedia and I read through that and then I follow the citation footnotes and I'll read those as well. Mm -hmm. So it could be maybe I got my wires crossed or it's said it on Wikipedia, which means we can update it <laughs> and fix that. <laughs> Set the record straight. <laughs> so I and I don't want you to think this is a criticism, and I thought your homework was terrific. So oh, um, I welcome your criticism. <laughs> so so I was just like, I don't want Peter Jackson to hear that. A <laughs> rivalry. I hate this script when like, uh no, I have and you know, I know Peter Jackson's a big Doctor Who fan, so it's important to me to keep that. <laughs> Sure. Something else, like not only my <laughs> admiration for Peter, but the fact that I didn't have anything to do with that. Okay. Okay. The record is set straight. I will contact Wikipedia immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so what did happen was we had a draft of the script written by Michael Almereda, um, who had done Twister. And what happened generally happened with nightmare scripts, um, except in the case of uh, Wes's first script, obviously, somewhat David Chaskin's script for Nightmare 2 and and Chuck and Frank's script for Nightmare 3, but not Wes and Bruce Wagner's script for Nightmare 3. Did I just say Nightmare 2? Wes, uh, Chuck's script for Nightmare 3 was generally we got scripts in that weren't Nightmare on Elm Street. Generally, we got okay. people writing things that right. they wanted to take it so far from because ultimately... It, the film became about the kills right. <laughs> and about Freddie right. and the kills. So what is your, yeah. and some of the stuff that you mentioned that you like best, like the cockroach and the, it just sitting was us sitting there going, okay, what is, who is the character? What is their deepest fear? And how do we turn that fear on its side? And then the next step was, well, how do we turn, once we're turning that fear on its side, how do we shoot, shoot that um, in yeah. an interesting way? I, I, I really, really, really love the cockroach death. And that's a that's great a, one. So creative. That's a combination of the obvious thing to do when she was afraid of bugs is to 
Indiana Jones, throw her in the snake pit. Sure, yeah. Dump her in a bazillion cockroaches. But the idea that you could turn her into a cockroach was so much more interesting. And then Rennie Harlan had all these these insane, his storyboards were so beyond anything we could ever handle. So my job was to rein him in (laughs) and to, to maximize what we could do in the kills and give him as much as we possibly could with while still just keeping us somewhere within the budget. So that um, with Nightmare 3 and Nightmare 4, I'm very proud of all the things that we managed to do. And in some ways I feel like I was significantly disadvantaged on Freddy's Dead because for a variety of financial reasons that made my kills much, uh, my kills were much more expensive and therefore we could do much less. Mm. And so there's things that, when you talk about the problems with the film, I mean, num- and there are numerous problems with the film, and it's certainly not the film I would make <laughs> today. Um, but I, you, first thing you want to do is put it in the context of the time period, what mm-hmm. I was asked to do, what I was asked to provide at that time, and what was given to me. And so that to me is sort of the explanation, the, the excuses, the series of excuses for yeah. Nightmare. So in a way, it's really heartening to hear what a great sort of slumber party movie it, it is. Because, oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the too much Looney Tunes, the not enough horror, which which just even now sort of, um, I mean, people, I see people on the net say, I can't look at any of her work because uh, Freddie's Dead was so terrible. Oh, and I'm that's like, harsh. Can you get, can you, yeah, can you give me, you know, can you give me a, can you look at my fucking, excuse me, am I not supposed to <laughs> Oh no, please <laughs> proceed. Can you fucking look at, you know, something at, at my Doctor Who's? Yeah. You know, stuff I'm, I'm super proud of, of uh, because, no, you have to just say, but I can't forgive her for that. Yeah. I mean, you've made such incredible films and TV. It's interesting to hear your perspective because to me, you're, body of work speaks for itself so strongly. And I think Freddy's Dead itself, it's such a joyful film. I don't know. I feel like people need to embrace it for what it is. You know, it is fun. It is a perfect slumber party movie, like you said. It is a, and part of the genre needs to be joy. I mean, if you love horror, it doesn't all have to be dark. And in a franchise, there needs to be room for different different tones, different voices. And I, I don't know. I had I had a ton of fun with it personally. Yeah, I had, of course, heard some criticism leading into it. So I was delighted to watch it and discover that I was having the best time. And I, I hope people do keep a moral open mind with it because I, I think, like I said, it's it's joy. It's fun. It's a perfect time capsule of a, of a time in our lives when definitely in my life when slumber parties were huge. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm, it, that hurts my heart a little bit to hear that perspective, but well, I, I also, yeah, I mean, it, I believe it entirely. So if I just sort of go into the, continue with the excuses. Yeah. So Nightmare 3, Nightmare 4, Nightmare 5 were all made a year apart. They were just completely, it was like, this is our mark. This is our, the house that New Line built this is our marketing, this is our money, this is our... So the second we finished Nightmare 3, they had a release date for Nightmare 4. We had no script. You know, jam it through. Um, (laughs) And so this, I mean, this was, these were all marketing decisions. So Nightmare 5 did much less. So I don't know where you came up with the statistic that 
it's number five in in the um, uh, box office because I don't know whether that's over, you know, adjusted dollars or whatever. Because yeah. Nightmare Five did much less well than Nightmare Four, and there's mm. there's two re- I, I attribute because it's only opinion, um, and I really think that people have to understand that opinion is not fact. Right. Um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> so it's really important. Um, <laughs> that I attribute that to two things. One is just complete saturation of the marketplace. When you put out three films in three years, you can't expect people to, uh, I mean, people understand that you are now, I think, and I think that horror, that people have bullshit detect, really, really strong bullshit detectors and horror film fans have really strong bullshit detectors. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) They know that, they know when somebody's making the ripoff of, Oh well, that worked. So now I'm going to make the ripoff version of it. Um, mm-hmm. They they know when somebody's not a real horror fan and doesn't understand the genre. And it's just, I mean, I've sat in rooms where people have said, "Oh, horror is easy. You, you know, it's just a bunch of gore. That's really easy." And it's like, no, you don't understand anything about horror if you if that's what you believe. <laughs> but the real problem, I think, with Nightmare Five and the box office was this idea of making it about Freddy's baby about the baby and that the fetus concept was so yeah. anti um and and Sarah Risher who was the bit, who was second in command at New Line at that point who was the big who just had a baby and it, I mean or had, you know and was obsessed with Rosemary's baby and somehow felt like Freddie could become Rosemary's baby and that's where that concept came from oh, okay. but it was so ill conceived from the standpoint of our teenagers and what our teenagers were interested in. And so uh-huh. I think that's, again, opinion, I think that's number one problem with Nightmare 5. And number two problem is it's so dark. It's so incredibly uh-huh. violent and dark. And that uh-huh. was a choice, but I think the combination of those two things really did turn off the audience. So uh-huh. as talented as Steve Hopkins is, and as creative as he was, and as a good job as they did producing this film they had to the the motorcycle scene they had to cut back 30 40 percent on how incredibly violent it was and so i wasn't so when i came in to do freddie's dead i was instructed to bring it much lighter turn it back into a date movie mm. and, I, and they had already decided that they were going to do this gimmick of making the ending 3d Okay. Um, That marketing gimmick had already been determined. So a huge amount of money went into that marketing gimmick. And that money came out that money came out of my effects. And my so it was in unbelievably time consuming to shoot the really, really lame 3D. Uh, It was it was very it was twice as time consuming. And it was really expensive. So that gimmick for 10 minutes pulled my budget well, way below what the other budgets had had. Uh, not way below, but below what the other budgets had had and didn't. And so then the script, ultimately the script, which was by Michael DeLuca, who's right now the head of Warner Brothers. Nobody ever talks about you know, how important <laughs> Michael DeLuca is as a producer, where his career has gone. Why did he write this campier version? Because I I may have camped it more, but 
not not necessarily on purpose. I didn't really, I mean, I knew the version because the instruction was just to be funny or funny camp. I mean, it's campier than I, I, I now wish it was, but I didn't really intend that. We just were instructed to make it as much a date movie as we could. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's sort of where yeah. the whole tonal thing was. So this business of don't make it too girly also, but that's where the tonal thing um, shift is, you know, don't make it so violent and don't make the mistakes of Nightmare 5 because we lost a massive amount of box office. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we did another, well, ultimately when we were released, we were a big success. We didn't make as much money as Nightmare 3, but again, too many movies glutted the marketplace, everything, but we did a lot better than Nightmare um, 5 meant that I fulfilled the assignment. Yeah, and yeah. Now, and I understand, I'm not arguing that horror fans, that, that they sh- shouldn't prefer the horror in Nightmare 5, but I'm saying right. that I was given an assignment um, in yeah. my, and so that's, the, those con- contextual things are missing in the, yeah, they are. I mean, yeah. it, and it's also, it's very different to look at it today than it was when there was so much energy for it and so much, it, it was much better received then than it is now. Whereas Tank Girl was is much better received now than it was then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, oh, that's so, go, go figure. Yeah, uh-huh. that's that's sort of my my excuses in my overview. And then I made some <laughs> mistakes. You know, I was a first time director. I made some mistakes. It's it's so interesting because I think there are so many amazing things about Freddy's Dead, but I think that you're really right that as horror fans, we often heap all of the criticism just onto the director's shoulder. It's like you see that name as director and they get blamed for ev- everything, even though you're not taking into account the production company and the financing and, you know, what was required of you and the writer and all of that, you know, but... Um, and you don't really necessarily... You shouldn't have to know that. I mean, all you have to work with, you're you're doing what you need to do because that's all you have to work with. So I like yeah. to sort of say, I'd like to make it known that that I had certain instructions. Yeah, um, yeah. And yet I still, I think, went too far. And I, I mean, there, I definitely have regrets, but also that financially it became, it became much more complicated. Also, in terms of the effects, the Dream Demons, 3D digital effects, very expensive really silly sure. very ex- very expensive for, for what? we love the silly but yeah. I, I actually <laughs> love the dream <laughs> fine they are what they are but yeah. you know just a very very expensive effect because right. in the computer today oh man yeah two dollars but in those days through the 3d and the digital and the same thing that was very expensive was spencer in the video game way yeah. beyond the oh, budget that makes sense uh-huh. way 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 all that animation um in, a, in an optical effect way it seems like well that shouldn't be more expensive than what you managed with the uh, stop motion on in nightmare three mm-hmm. but somehow i managed to and, and we had a bunch of stop motion in nightmare three but somehow when i was producing nightmare three i managed to get that stuff into a really minimum budget whereas by the time we were and i think Part of the costs of Nightmare 6 had to do with the success of the franchise at that point. So it was harder to get people to do stuff for next to nothing. Oh, on the cheap. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so 
we always believed in, in giving people new opportunities. And one thing I love about the Spencer scene is that was like, oh, this is embarrassingly, there was a whole period of time, because you can look at the history of people's criticisms over 30 years, there was a whole period of time where it's like, this is just the shittiest effects. And now there's like, oh, this works really well as an homage to yeah. the shitty effects of that time period. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now, now that's good again. Yeah, so it like, has a, a like, charm. It's charming. Yes. Yeah, it's a wonderful nostalgic memory of what it was like yeah. to be an 8-bit. But right. when, when we started, it was just bad at facts because you're competing with Jim Cameron coming out with T2. Um, yeah. and so, oh, and, right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And breaking the barriers of the beginnings of digital and morphing and all the, that was the beginning of morphing was T2. And so you're competing in that world and everything that's this looks like shit. And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> for the audio only, that was me just rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've alluded a couple times to things that you maybe would have done differently. Are there, are there things that should you rewind time and get a chance to do it again? What are some things you, you think you might want to change? The very first thing I would do is take the high five at the end out, <laughs> which is just so mortifyingly embarrassing. And to producer, no! Aaron, to producer, producer Aaron Warner, who said, take it out, Rach. Uh, I'm like, Aaron, you were always right. I, please take it out. <laughs> um, num number two, um, I wish that I had, when Spencer's in the video game, but in reality, I wish I hadn't made that comedic. I wish I had made that really, really scary, like dragging him over the ceiling. And and um, uh, I wish I hadn't gone Looney Tunes with that. So that's a very specific one. But um, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is fun. He's in the video game. He's in reality. We'll, we'll parallel those things. But actually, I think it would be so much more effective if we had done more of a Johnny Depp kind of thing in the real world. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and that was just me being wrong. And uh, I'm trying to think, Th those are two particularly specific ones. And uh, there's like Tracy jumping, you know, doing twirls and jumping up on the thing that we made way over the top that I wish hadn't been so over the top. And I would have pulled back on the camp. I would not have taken out the cameos. Um, good, good, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, I probably I hope I would have maybe cast it a little bit better which I'm not going to elaborate <laughs> uh, the, other, the other thing that I think is well is really underestimated is actually the importance of the themes of the movie that I somehow managed to diminish by being a little by being too goofy which was this theme of child abuse and this theme right. of abuse of of, of girls and yeah. um, I thought that was really important. I thought you could parallel those better. And interestingly, mm -hmm. I had a I had an inter I had a get to know you meeting with a big company yesterday, and they were talking about how they love mixing genres now. And I just started laughing. I'm like, oh man, for you know, 25 years I heard can't mix genres, can't mix genres, can't. And right. now they're like, oh, we love it when we get a project that mixes genres, or when we get a TV series that changes its tones when it as it's going along. And I look at of course, all the changes. I mean, you mentioned Doom Patrol. I mean, Doom Patrol is like just genius in terms of 
uh, tonally completely out there and and uh, mixing genres and, 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 and all that stuff. But in those days, things were so much more linear and the audience was more linear. Right. So that so that business of mixing genres, I wish that we had. Um, on the other hand, you say something very interesting in your podcast, which is if we had take if I had taken the movie completely seriously all the way through, it would be unbearable. <laughs> so <I found laughs> you need the breather. Yeah. <laughs> so I found that fascinating, but I think there is a better balance for for the movie. But I think that Mike DeLuca put in the script these really important topics, yeah. and nobody gives them any attention. They just say it's all too goofy. Mm. I mean, when they're criticizing it. And yeah. I, obviously, yeah. if I did it again, I would be a better director from the standpoint of how I worked with actors. Um, yeah, I wish the acting was better. That's uh, on me. Yeah, I mean, but I think that's Cap interesting because that that scene with Tracy and her father, that sort of dream flashback that she has is so powerful. I mean, I, I do think you really accomplished something there, even if maybe you don't feel like the tones were as seamless as you wanted it to be. I do think there's something there as well as with uh, Freddy Krueger's childhood scenes too. Those were really interesting and, and really dark and, and powerful about what they were saying about bullying and child abuse and stuff. So we spent the majority, I mean, and it's clear, we we imbalanced how much time we spent on which sequence. And mm -hmm. I had this problem on my movies a little bit anyway, was we spent a little bit too much time on one sequence. It wasn't as well scheduled and balanced. And so obviously the Carlos, uh, uh, we had a lot, we spent more time on Carlos and it's a much more effective sequence, but Tracy's, sequence. <laughs> Tracy's scene I think is a really important scene. I believe it was Bob Shea's idea that after she beats the shit out of him at the toaster and you're scared to see what you're going to see, I think it was Bob's idea that we do that sort of uh, smashed head that is not horrific. It's not pure horror. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's not something you have to, as a date movie, you have to look away from. And also remembering what violence was like then versus what we see every day in television now, how violent things are and the the I mean with the success of Game of Thrones there was a long period of time in TV where everybody was like just make it more bloody make it more bloody or just you know horse's head in the bed um, <laughs> and, and I'm like that's not the essence of Game of Thrones in the same way I mean that's the bullshit detector you're just doing yeah. stuff for stuff's sake and so always trying to find some legitimacy and some so for me that Tracy scene is a scene that has power because it's that's the feminist scene of of in the same way that tank girl that the naomi watts character in tank girl has the real me too stories yeah um that or um in this case all parents are bad which is very much of a nightmare on elm street theme um <laughs> yeah <laughs> very true uh yeah. but so yeah i think thematically all that stuff's important and i wish there was more discussion of, of that but then i feel like that's my fault for going too far with the looney tunes so yeah i mean you have such a like kind of like a diversity of stories within that theme so i think you get more credit you deserve more credit than than you think you know like they show we see a lot of different versions of that dynamic that comes back to that power dynamic so i don't know i yeah 
<laughs> I'm not gonna I, I'm gonna praise the film because I like it, but I, I think that there's a difference between criticizing a film and being critical about a film. And I think when that that discussion about the Looney Tunes veers much further into the former instead of a much more interesting conversation, which I think is the latter. So that's what I wish for while acknowledging I wish we'd had more time. I wish we'd had more money. I wish I'd done a better job. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish. But that there is some context to some of it as well. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I wish we hadn't been forced to do 3D because it was so complicated and expensive and slow and so unsatisfying and unnecessary. Yeah. And, it, mm. and to end up in this, with all the 3D in this basement set, that was you know, the size of a room with a 3D camera. <laughs> and the 3D cameras were, they were two cameras mounted next to each other, two Mitchell cameras, which were massive because um, they were pin registered, mounted next to each other. And there was no computers to run them or anything. So there was no ability to change the interocular distance, which means wow. that you could, you could never dolly in and out because that's where you need to change the the distance between the eyes as you dolly in and out. You could only move laterally, or you would get the you would get they couldn't m match the film, and right. you would just get sick. And every time we wanted to look at anything in 3D, they had to pay to do the full optical process just to look at it to marry the two pieces of film. So, I mean, all the expenses involved in that are just insane. Yeah, but we were so limited in what we could do, and so besides, you know, Freddie's glove coming at you, there's basically nothing, <laughs> nothing in there. It's just a bunch of and unspeakably slow. So, like five setups a day when a normal nightmare day would be thirty setups. Oh, wow. um, yeah, that would really yeah. change things. One camera, five, six setups a day. I mean, and oh, it was it was a nightmare. <laughs> but maybe i mean i do talk to people who love the 3d and or and people particularly who saw it when they were younger in the theater and it did i'm sad it more i exciting. missed that i would have yeah, loved to have gotten to see the 3d <laughs> yeah because watching it now without i do think you lose some of that and as a little kid i'm sure i would have adored the 3d because anytime i got to see it it was like you know mind-blowing yeah. as a child because <laughs> as a child the, the 3d was i mean what was interesting is because now they never all the post 3d nothing ever comes out of the screen um, yeah. because when you do it in, when you do it in post you you're not in a place where you can you have to actually shoot it to be able to come out of the screen you can't in post oh okay just do the right. um so you never get the the really really cool yeah um, uh, sort of uh, best of three D where you're reaching out to touch it. So, um, yeah. all yeah, opinion, opinion, opinion. <laughs> so I was just curious because I mean this is Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. It was at the time billed as the final Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Did that add any pressure to you as you were making it? Did you feel the pressure of this is supposed to be the finale movie for this franchise? No, because I never really believed it was the. I didn't know what they would do, I <laughs> but I, 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 I knew that if it was if we did well, they were going to make another one. Make another one. I think they did a. I mean, I think Wes Craven's New Nightmare is the most amazing reboot, and 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 they were right to finally get Wes back into the, and mm -hmm. and change everything. I mean, I think their decisions were fantastic, but no, I, I mean, the pressure was just to make a movie that would, um, 
yeah, I wasn't thinking about the iconic nature of the finalness or anything. Yeah. And if you listen to the Iggy Pop uh, song at the end, Iggy says, do you really think that Freddie's dead? And I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do we want to put this in? Here? Are we going to like be this cynical that we're going to put this in here? But um I mean, I feel like Nightmare fans can handle it. (laughs) It seems fine now. At at that point, I was like, hmm, are we giving away the... I mean, one was frightened of alienating the fans. But no, I didn't feel... I mean, there was so much pressure anyway just doing it. But I didn't feel extra pressure because I was a woman and I didn't feel extra pressure because it was the final one. I felt like, okay, I've been doing this for four of six films and I had some involvement in, in... the fifth and so i'm just going to use everything i know to do this and it's going to be good that's good that's i mean you had such a history with the franchise do you feel like that helped people to you in a time where there were not a lot of women directing give you the kind of credibility that you needed on set or did you still kind of face some of that that dynamic no a lot of the people i hired had i mean i think that helped a huge amount plus new line acceptance of it um Mm -hmm, and my relationship with new line i didn't feel misogyny to do with it at all um it was after that that i learned after i left new line that i learned how (laughs) insane the misogyny was and how anti-women directors the world was but Mm -hmm. living in that world and and as a director on a feature i have generally found less misogyny in that because you're hiring the crew right i mean not uh tank girl's a totally separate story and i don't want to go go into it now but i mean because because that was misogyny personified but um the irony generally if you're you're hiring if you're hiring the crew and because i had so much history with nightmare because i was the bible of nightmare I probably had more, besides Bob Shea, I had more experience on this series than, and Sarah Risher than uh, I did find that people re- respected that. When you look back on your time shooting the film, is there a, a day or a moment that comes back to you first that you think about when making the film? No, uh, it's not like... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not like I mean I guess maybe having Johnny Depp on set maybe having Alice Cooper on set maybe dealing with Roseanne Arnold then Roseanne Barr now um, I mean the, the, cam- the cameos were pretty special and particularly enjoying the Johnny you know hitting Johnny Depp in the head with the frying pan um, <laughs> was super fun uh the putting john doe putting sean up in the uh uh, parachute was a massive to do uh but not like i mean if you ask me about doctor who i'll tell you about being outside saint paul's cathedral and that's you know like one of the days of like i couldn't believe that i was getting to have cybermen outside saint paul's cathedral that's still like unbelievably magical but um no, there was nothing like that. It was more little things. I was very entertained by the crew being so excited to meet Alice Cooper more than Johnny Depp. <laughs> they were like, oh, that's fine. And it's typical. Whatever genre you work in, you're more impressed by. You know, sports stars want to be music stars. Music stars want to act. 
actors want to be want to do music. Everybody wants to be a sports star. <laughs> um, so, so the grass is always is always greener, even when it isn't. So a commercial directors who are making eight zillion times more money want to do drama. So everybody's everybody's looking to to spark their creativity further. But the excitement to to have Alice Cooper on set was amazing. That must have been incredible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so our friend Jason, who was on our Freddy's Dead episode, he yep. absolutely loves this movie. And he loves was wondering it. if you have a favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie other than your own, other than Freddy's Dead. So I often refer to Nightmare 1 in terms of when I'm teaching horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the two favorites really are 1 and, and 3. And I often refer to Nightmare One in terms of Wes's absolute mastery of suspense. And my frustration when I work with non, if I do anything to do with horror on anything I do, if I'm working with non-horror people, the fact that they don't understand that horror is about suspense. It's not about yeah. the, the final, the kill. It's about the lead up to the kill. And so you work on things and they're like, what's all this? walking around stuff. And I'm like, but that's, you know, you're missing the entire <laughs> So the slowness of those moments are the, and so I can ex- use those examples. And I, I think it's interesting to compare uh, Nightmare One with the remake and all mm-hmm. the things that are wrong with the remake that miss mm-hmm. everything that Wes did so well. Mm-hmm. And then Nightmare Three, because it was a really strong script as well. And that also because it was the kitchen sink and we accomplished it. Yeah. So those, those are my uh, two favorites. Yeah. They're great. <laughs> I agree. And when I think about the, the puppeteer scene in the third one or the, the fingers, the glowing finger syringes, they're just iconic moments. And I it's mean, so cool that you got to be a part of those and making those happen. <laughs> And I, the snake scene, I mean, that was so hard. The, and we had, I mean, we had miniatures and we had, um, I need to shout out to Mick Strong, the production designer and, and his sister, um, CJ. And just what, but particularly Mick as this innovator who helped me connect the art department with the visual effects, with the mechanical effects, with the, and Mick was so innovative in terms of, putting all those elements together in an affordable way. So um, it, just it, incredible what he did on particular Nightmare 3 and Nightmare 4 from the standpoint of doing the impossible um, yeah. in terms of what, what we accomplished. So because if you just left it to the visual effects department uh, the, and the mechanical effects department, they were so expensive. So Mick then would come in with a really inexpensive smart art department solution whenever he could uh and that was a that was a lifesaver particularly on nightmare three and four yeah i mean nightmare three is something that i feel like that movie in particular everybody references all the time like all horror fans love those scenes because they are so iconic it's just it's so cool that you got to be a part of such big movies and these huge movie moments that literally every fan has emblazoned in their memory. You know, it's, it's really And who cool. knew? I mean, at the time it was just another, it was another, I mean, I'd done a bunch of sure. low budget horror and it was another one. And I knew that Nightmare One was a very good script. It's very scary. I mean, and, 
just reading the body bag scared me. Just give a shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> I couldn't sleep for like two nights after reading that. My husband's like laughing at me. I'm like, no, it's really <laughs> <laughs> that's a good sign. I mean, yeah, that's a, it's like, a good barometer. <laughs> I like when you said something about you know when you've watched so much horror that you don't feel anymore. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I was always, I always said that I was a good producer for Nightmare because I had many fears. I have many fears in my real life. And so I was able to, to be, instead of being that person who watched, I couldn't go to the slumber parties and go to the horror films when I was 11 because I was so sensitive. So sometimes I'm misquoted as saying I don't like horror. And that quote was, I didn't like horror when I was a kid because I was too scared. Um, right. And that's, that's mis that, I mean, I haven't seen that misquoted in a long time, but it, that was misquoted at some point. So occasionally I'll see people, but you didn't even like horror. I'm like, no, oh. you don't understand. Like, I love <laughs> horror. I don't like, um, and I, and, and I love uh, good, uh, and I love good conceptual horror. Um, mm -hmm. I'm yeah. also not, a, not a fan of, of revenge horror or, or revenge porn. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, really horror porn. Um, that's fine, you know. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't make me not. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't make me not adore. Adore, great horror. Yeah. And, Stop and, keeping horror fandom, people. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you, the audience out here does look at the criticism of myself. <laughs> and go, wait, what do you mean? I'm perfect. <laughs> no, I, made lots of, I made lots of mistakes, but I also, you know, there's there's a person here trying to understand, and, and I feel like I have a much better understanding now of what's scary and what um, than I did then. We were just trying to get through and trying to do cool effects and trying to yeah. and just trying to make. I think that's the other thing is that's missing is just how hard it is to make anything, and therefore. Yeah that gets lost as well. It's just like, yeah. And attributing, attributing, like, uh, sometimes stuff happens just because it happens. You're just getting right. through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and I think it's important to remember that there is like heart and energy behind it. And, and, you know, the best of intentions, um, which I think when people get in their feelings about stuff, sometimes maybe forget that part of it. And I think you've brought so much really important context to this, the way that the movies were in conversation with one another and, and all of the, all of the off-screen things really are fascinating and give us greater context for appreciating the film, appreciating the film as it is. I hope, I hope people take that away from this. Yeah, definitely. But you know, I mean, definitely. but they should still hold up and, you know, Nightmare One still holds up and, and Freddy's Dead doesn't. So I mean, it holds up at some levels and not at all on other yeah. levels. So that's, that's, that's true. So, um, and I, and I'm not defending that, as I said, there's, it's not the film. I mean, I would make a completely different film if I were making it now, but, sure. um, and I would, sure. I would make a scare. I would make so I'm many manifesting funny films. that right now. I would make it. I would make a much more interesting, scarier film now um, and still have humor. But yeah. Um, yeah. I would, I would have, have much, yeah, I'd have much more joy in the suspense and in the creativity of the effects. And everything I do now is, and then I'll be quiet, but everything I do is informed by everything I learned 
doing the Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street films. Everything I learned about, and it helped my career hugely to learn early on how to do effects, visual effects. And that's the other thing is like the audience understanding that these were optical effects, not digital effects. What a yeah. difference it would have made if we'd had digital. How much yeah. more more we could have done and how cool it yeah. would have been if we'd had digital. That's true. But, Although I, I would be sad to lose the practical effects. We just love how they look. So mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's been cyclical too. There was a period sure. of time where everything had to look perfect and now everybody wants yeah. to go back to practical. I love doing practical now and I'm often on the shows I do asking to yeah. do the practical version. And often you're said, no, do the visual effects version because it's faster and take less time on t- set. Just mm-hmm. hand it over to them. And I'm like, I don't want it to look perfect. I want it. I want the mistakes that happen in the, the, in the natural world to be part of what you're showing now. But in those yeah. days... There was, yeah. I mean, again, your cycles are so interesting in terms of what the audience wants now. And now the audience doesn't want you to be able to jump from an airplane to another airplane with no believability of, they they don't want everything to be cheated. I yeah. think. Yeah. No, so, I agree. I totally agree. It's so absolutely. exciting when you see it and you're like, oh, no, that really happened in camera. You know, like even if there are rough edges, you know that it actually happened in camera. And that is always so exciting. Isn't it? Yeah. There's like a weight to it then, you know. Yeah. So we speak with a lot of women identified directors who have talked about the challenges that there can be for women in the business. Have you found that being a woman presents unique challenges? And I guess after being in the decade in the industry for so many decades, do you feel like maybe something's changing there? Have you gotten to um, witness that's- that? Yes, and that's a, a five-hour show. And, okay, and, uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, I've been very, very engaged in. I mean, I've watched my career. Yeah, I went to movie jail and Tank Girl for doing a mm-hmm. feminist movie, a feminist comic book movie. Yeah. Um, I absolutely went to movie jail. Didn't come out of movie jail until two years ago. Um, mm. That was twenty-something years in movie jail. So I know. And at that point, when I made Tank Girl the numbers of women directors was going up and then it was like, boom, we're going to slam the door. Um, I know. So, and then I've been very involved in the, um, and it was, I basically just call it the dark years from 1998 to 2014 when the statistics for female directors went down to 3% and I was lucky to work at all. So, and the abuse on set, the entitlement of the men and the, and a lot of that was also like a lack of awareness. Like a lot of guys would say, oh, you know, I, I, was, I was perfectly comfortable having a woman director and completely treated you differently mm-hmm. um, and, and behaved Jeez. really badly, but didn't understand their or see their bad behavior. So it's been really interesting to analyze all that. I've been working on my memoirs. Memoirs, that's a horrible word. Uh, uh, I've been working on <laughs> on writing up the my history and just coming up, you know, bringing up all those stories. And then what happened? And I credit the ACLU um, for work that they did, which is all very unsung to cha- to create changes for women directors. I believe that they are what was significant. And there was a specific lawyer at the ACLU, Southern California, who. Um, uh, you know, I worship for what she did for women directors and is utterly un- underappreciated um, because people think it was all me too that changed everything, but it was actually work that the ACLU did. 
at that time period that changed everything. And we needed lawyers to change things. So yes, yeah. I think things have improved now. I think, and obviously diversity is incredibly important, but I also see behavior on, shocking behavior on set still. Not so much to me. Um, I feel like I've mostly now gotten beyond that. I say with, with um, trepidation and I feel like I have more, <laughs> but now I do a lot of mentoring of younger directors and I'm like, why are they treating you like this? Why are they giving you? And then there's this massive insecurity among women and diverse directors because they're not mentored properly. They're not supported mm -hmm. properly. Um, mm -hmm. And until we're still working on balancing the industry. So there's enough complete diversity and uh, uh, including gender diversity that it's natural. Because I used to hate it when, um, what, what was it like being a woman directing this? That question. Mm -hmm. I don't know, mm -hmm. I've never been a man directing this. <laughs> what, what, uh, <laughs> um, what, what did it, it, those sort of questions that like was supposed to be so significant but actually was like those are just like really awful questions and the ACLU taught me like those questions are all wrong like they're just they're and it's illegal to tell you to act more like a man it's illegal to there's all kinds of really interesting things that i learned because i had subverted my entire personality by the time the early 2010s came along i basically had subverted my entire personality just to try and get through a show that i was working on oh, so uh and and i credit the changes created by the aclu and i credit um doctor who which was a life changer for me from the standpoint mm -hmm. of both just being embraced and being supported and just became this wonderful, the thing you dream of, which is the place that feels like a home for you, where yeah. you're respected and you can. And I remember the moments on set when I started realizing I'm not pretending to be somebody else. I'm not looking around all day and saying, what do I have to be to oh, not wow. get, um, to not be accused of she did this and how amazing that was and yet i mean i have stories from doctor who of, of sort of outsiders saying saying terribly uh anti-women things mm -hmm. um <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah yeah, yeah that, that is really good perspective because i think we look at the number of like oh we've had you know 20 movies this year have been directed by women. This is great for us as women, as our podcast, you know, because look at all these women who are getting to tell their stories. What we don't see <laughs> is this aspect of it and how this aspect is still lagging behind. So I think that's really Yeah, and I, I'm still like, and I, when I sometimes talk to actors and they'll say, oh yeah, the, I had a director recently who just touched me all over. And I'm like, in 2020? In 2022? What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they just came to move me and just happened to just, you know, put their hand on my breast or my butt. or and I, Really? Like, I thought we were, I did think we were past that. And we're to totally not past that. Right, um, yeah. Sadly. But, um, yeah. And, and I just keep hoping. And, I mean, and hallelujah for the improvements. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's so encouraging to know that things are really changing. Like we've been sort of feeling that as an audience, but to know that they really are. But I think it's equally as important to talk about the ways in which it has not changed too. So thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a little. So our next question is weird. <laughs> it's a weird transition, <laughs> which is, do you have advice for young women who maybe want to go into directing, but don't feel like that they can because of these sort of dynamics or lack of opportunity for women <sighs> yeah right <laughs> like I said this is a rough transition because <laughs> so, it's so hard and I wouldn't I mean I don't know I had I had this sort of revelation the other day that if I had understood what directing was I wouldn't have probably wouldn't have done it um which <laughs> and yet I've had some of the most unbelievably amazing uh times on set and and uh, so much work I'm proud of. But when I realized that all directing is, is being judged all day long, both for your work and for who you are, and as a woman, even more so, somebody is always there going, how did she behave on set? Um, oh, wait a minute, you right. didn't make your decision. You didn't make that decision fast enough, um, or that wasn't the right, the right decision, as if there is one. So all day long, you're being judged as a person as well as being your work being judged. Like, well, that's nuts. And yeah. you, have so little, you have so little control if you want to be in, I mean, you know, there's what, a dozen directors who are auteur enough to have any independence. And so you have to definitely have, a, you have to want it really badly. And yet, if you want it really badly, then it's absolutely worth doing. But the advice for, I mean, it's perseverance. It's just absolutely perseverance. And then it's taking advantage of whatever context you can make. And it's patience and it's de determination. And it's filmmaking as much as you possibly can. And in any way you can, at least, at least now you can get your iPhone in. I mean, I made this film, An Introvert's Guide to High School, for under $5,000. And Incredible. so, and that was a story that um, we wanted to tell. I, I executive produced it and, and paid for it, but it was a story we wanted to tell. I knew I couldn't go through the process of getting it financed. It was shot in six days with all improv. And it's the story, the director's story of being abused in high school for being an introvert. So mm -hmm. uh, it's completely experimental. It's completely improv. You can watch it on YouTube. And uh, I'm, super proud of it it's it's rough it's innovative it's different it has no attention but it's an, an important story about to, that i thought needed to be told about how rough it is to have, be an introvert and have people not in, a, in an extroverted world mm -hmm. so yeah. i think that film if if that director had wanted to she's gone off to graduate school to do um, other things, but if she had wanted to use that as a calling card, it would have been a very good, um, that would have been the kind of thing that would have had attention. Mm -hmm. And if we hadn't brought it out during COVID, we had a lot of festival play, um, but during COVID where um, not, there was nothing in person. Sure. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Her and her introversion was such that she decided filmmaking is not for me. But that yeah. kind of example of just you have to go out there, you have to be innovative, you have to have your own voice, you have to tell your story is uh, something I really support. And 
the last thing you should do, the bullshit detector. It's not just with horror fans. The last thing thing you should do is be derivative because you won't be noticed if you're going along being derivative. I guess I love that advice because it's like um, there's, you know, issue with resources, right? As a, as a first time or an aspiring director, but what you're talking about is a resource that they do have, which is their story and to tell their story authentically. That's amazing advice. That's incredible. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, you have been so incredibly generous with your time, but before we let you go, I I just wanted to ask if there was anything that we didn't touch on that you were hoping you'd get a chance to talk about today. Um, I'm just looking at my notes, but no, I think not. I think we're, I think we're, I think we got, I think I talked enough. Okay. (laughs) I mean, disagree, but yes, (laughs) I loved it. This was great. What an amazing conversation. Thank you. So, well, thank um, you so much. Can we put a link to Introvert's Guide to High School in the in your absolutely? With of course. The, with the, I'll send I'll send you that just so it'd be nice to for yeah a few people yeah, who are looking to. to say okay this is what we managed to do for for five grand in six days. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, amazing. And wow. Seven years seven years of post production. Wow. <laughs> six, six days to shoot. And then it sat on hard drives until finally I cut it together with the help of other people. And then but yeah, you can tell you can. So I I do like to promote this story because it's a it is a story of how tough it is to, yeah, of to be an introvert as we as we know. So okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for so um, when much. when you responded to our social media posts, like our minds were blown. <laughs> we didn't think <laughs> a, uh, a director <laughs> as big as you would, you know, have tuned in to something we did. So the fact that you were willing to take time with us when you don't do podcasts normally, I just I so appreciate it. This has been fascinating to learn, you know, even more in depth what your story is. So thank you for your time. And I want to thank you because there was so much warmth in your podcast. Because I go into, I mean, people people tag me, you know, sure. Jason tagged me to be aware of it. I go in, particularly when it's Friday, of, you know, I go in like this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, but there was so much warmth and, and, and love in that, that I was like, okay, I should, just, but I can't leave. Oh, she hated Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no. Are you We're kidding? Glad you, I'm uh, so grateful. The yes. Right there. <laughs> yes. Then, and then when I was listening again last night, I thought, oh, we can have a good conversation because even if yeah. I have to, and it's not a criticism in any way because I really love, I felt very embraced by, oh, we're so uh, glad. by, by your piece and it, and it felt really good. But, um, and I don't listen to everything that's ever said about everything I do. <laughs> but right. Uh, well, so I'm glad you. that I'm, well, <laughs> our pleasure. Our absolute pleasure. <laughs> All right. So that was our chat with Rachel. That was that was so much fun. That was such a cool, cool thing to have gotten to do. It really was. You know, going into it, I was pretty nervous about the interview. Um just because you know, getting to talk to somebody who's been in the industry for so long, I was a little nervous about it, but it went so well. And she was just so open and willing to answer all of our questions. And I had a really fun time too. She's just mm-hmm. a blast to talk to. Mm-hmm. I loved hearing about all the films and how there is kind of 
we think we talk a lot about this sort of like meeting of art and also capitalism. And so yeah. to hear her, someone who's actually been on both sides of that and still managed to create these incredible things. I don't know. I just, I loved the sort of that juxtaposition of those two things from the insider perspective, because I think I, I definitely have a cynical view of that typically, you know what I mean? Right. Like I can get up my own art, butt about stuff. So to hear her talk about it and the passion with which she talked about making these things come into reality was really, really fascinating to me and kind of, I think, helped me be a little bit less cynical about it. Yeah. And I just thought some of the behind the scenes stuff that I wouldn't have guessed was really interesting too. I mean, the way that she talked about the fact that Freddie's dead, the instructions that she was given was to make it a fun date movie. Yeah. That yeah. was really interesting because I wouldn't have guessed that. But now knowing that, it makes so much more sense about the kind of decisions that she made and also sort of the lack of budget that she had because they had to throw so much money into this whole 3D gimmick, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's all super interesting. Also, just the hand that she had in the earlier films, too. Like, we know, yeah. we kind of knew what roles she played. But the fact that she was the one who found Nancy's house, the location, yes. is so cool. That's so cool. She yeah. was, I mean, it, the, like, she, like she said, she had no idea that what she was doing, like, was everything she was doing was iconic. It would become yeah. iconic. Just be making those decisions and having no idea where it would end up is just wild to me. It's so, you cool. know, it's so crazy. I literally met a woman the other day who had on her thighs tattooed Michael Myers' house and Nancy's house. Oh, that's amazing. Were you like, <laughs> I like kind of know the person that found that film. Like that house, like no big deal. Kind of big deal. <laughs> you went else? I don't know. Did you? I remember when we covered Near Dark, there were some quotes yeah. that we were talking about where Catherine Bigelow was talking about not wanting to be seen as a woman director. And we were like, yep. oh, it's kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, there's probably a lot more to that. I kind of felt like the conversation we had with Rachel helped me that. understand yeah. that a little bit more because she was working in that time. She yeah. was working in that, what does she call it, the dark ages? She mm -hmm. was still making films and ugh, elbowing her way to those tables in a way that I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Of course. If it is that hard to get a horror film or a film made as a woman director at that time, I get why you would have that response. Like it made so much more yeah. sense to me. Yeah, it really did. And I, and I also just think having this conversation proved to me things that I sort of knew, but didn't know mm -hmm. for sure. Like the way that she was talking about how she was essentially put in like movie jail because she made mm -hmm. this one film that wasn't quite as successful, even though it did make quite a bit of money, wasn't yeah. quite as successful as they were hoping it would be. She basically was given no opportunities after that, Yeah, even though so many men have failed over and over again with their films, mm -hmm. not making money and continue to get greenlit. I just think it was eye opening just how dramatic it used to be and in some ways still is. Yeah. I mean, my hope that is, I mean, it appears from the outside, like things have changed a lot and it sounds like yeah. from Rachel's perspective, it has changed, but I'm guessing, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, when we're hopefully still doing this podcast and still talking to incredible women like Rachel, you know, we're going to hear a, a different version of that same kind of thing. I suspect, you know, we don't have parody. We don't have it. The, the people who have the power still are largely like at the tippy top are largely men. Yeah. So, but then you have Ra Rachel is a trailblazer. You know, she 
fought through, got out of jail, and is now making incredible projects. She continues yeah. to make iconic things. So I don't know. It's it was exciting. I that was a really, really great conversation. I got the sense that she felt a little bad about having to correct the record. I'm so grateful for it though. Oh like, yeah, me too. I'm genuinely I want to get it right. I feel like part of what we do is entertainment. Part of what we do is just because for the love of it. But I also feel like part of what we do is documenting a lesser documented part of film history, which is like women directed horror films. You know, it's kind of neat. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important for us to 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 put that forward and to have it be correct and to really show like the steps that women have gone through in their careers and the things that they've done. And so if we get, you know, even little things wrong, we definitely want to correct that and make it right. Yeah, because like what if something we say ends up wrong on, and it's on Wikipedia? Then we're like perpetuating <laughs> <Yeah>. the problem, <laughs> the, the pitfall that I fell into. I got to figure out exactly how I made those conclusions. I was like, when she asked, I was like, oh, God, I don't even remember. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, this is my methodology. I can tell right. you that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. What a dream. She was lovely. Conversation was amazing. So inspiring. So exciting. I cannot wait to see all the incredible things that she will continue to make because I feel like three decades in, she's just getting started. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> There's still so much, so much more there. Um, I would love to see her return to sort of a tank girl type of film and Ooh, really make yeah. another like, like what she would do with that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, you never know. You never know. <laughs> all right. Any other thoughts on, on this amazing interview before we wrap up? No. All right. Well, For those of you at home, maybe you guys have some thoughts. Maybe you want to chime in and let us know what you thought of our interview with the lovely Rachel. You can do so by emailing us at rachel at zombiegirls.com or you can come chat with us over on the Zombie Girls Facebook page. If you enjoy the show, if you're having a good time listening to us and you want to support us, one of the great ways that you can do that is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You can also like rate and review us on Spotify. I think that's just a rating system, but you know what to do. You'll get there. You'll figure it out. If you're looking for something spooky to watch today, because you've already watched Freddy's Dead and Tank Girl and Riverdale and the, uh, Doctor Who and Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting and uh, all the Doom Patrol and American Gods, all those things, you should check out our video on demand and streaming calendar at zombiegirls.com where we keep track of all the spooky doings that are happening on all the many, many streaming services and video on demand services out there. And last couple ways you can support us is obviously buying merch. Or, of course, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash zombie girls, uh, where you get extended episodes, bonus episodes. Our Halloween episode is out, but that just means we've got some new stuff coming. We've got a bonus episode that Miss Ariel will be the star of, the guest <laughs> of honor, you might even say. And, of course, our Christmas show, which you'll hear more about in the coming months. All right, that's enough for the plugs. I don't know about you, girl. But I, we've peaked. We might as well get the heck out of here. <laughs> Ariel, take we us out. We'll never do better than that interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it for another episode of More Deadly Director's Cut. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Rachel Talalay. We thought it was really, really wonderful. We hope you guys did too. And uh, we'll be back next time, hopefully, with another great interview. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks to my co-host Ariel, who's always willing to come on here and geek out about horror with me. And finally, thanks to the women who make the horror films we love so much. Production of this episode was done by yours truly, editing was done by Ariel Messman-Rucker, and our theme song, More Deadly, was by Elizabeth Kyle and Eric Newell.